Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh, write a dissertation, raise a kid, and maybe, maybe uh, eventually get a job. Um, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Kirsten Swinth, Professor of History and American Studies at Fordham University in New York. Uh, and today we will be talking about her great book, Feminism's Forgotten Fight. Uh, you can find uh, uh, Professor Swinth on Twitter at kswinth. Um, and you should check her out. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, so the book is fantastic. And it, it talks about this uh, period of feminism in the 60s and 70s. And you, you talk about feminism's forgotten fight. But it, before I read it, when I thought about feminists in this time, I had this like image of what they fought for was like, you know, going to work in big, you know, professional companies, you know, maybe like getting representation and like not having things be so sexist in, in movies and TV. And I never thought about housework and baby care and, um, you know, childcare and, and, and anything like that. So, so can you just tell me a little bit about how we, this, this myth of, uh, uh, what second wave feminism's goal was? Like, tell me what, what, yeah, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, there were, of course, extraordinary barriers to women's access to employment, equal employment, women's access to the professions, women's access to good paying male dominated jobs, women's access to professional and graduate education and co-education and the most elite institutions. And so the women's movement of the 1960s and 1970s did seek to overcome those barriers. But um, because they were the most widely popularized accomplishments, because they were the most straightforward accomplishments that you can mark by changed laws, um, by new education programs, um, by counting the number of women in the professions and so on, um, I think they quite quickly came to stand in for the whole movement um, in the popular imagination Less so in the scholarly literature, um, but to some extent as well. And so there was a kind of popular idea that, well, what second wave feminists really cared about was getting women in the door of jobs, but they kind of ignored the whole other side of the equation uh, mm. about the family and the home front. And I discovered that that just wasn't true. Well, before we, I, I, I mean, part of this is when I when I'm reading about this, the the stories are stories of my mother, my mother-in-law, the many of the professors who who taught me. It's the stories of, of of people that I know. Like my mom was a lawyer and had to kind of fight to become a lawyer in a way that if she was mm -hmm. born today, she wouldn't have to. So maybe that's part of it. That like it's such an obvious. Uh, uh, success, but before we before we jump into it, let's talk a bit about like what second wave feminism is. When I'm at parties, people talk about first and second and third wave feminism, and I nod like I know what they're talking about. Um, so, can you tell me what's second about second wave feminism? Yeah, so um, I define second wave feminism as the period of mass mobilization uh, into a large scale social movement for change for uh, gender equity that happened between roughly, my book covers the period from 1963 to 1978. 
And, you know, there's been, uh, we call it second wave uh, in relationship to the early 20th century mass mobilization, where, again, you had millions of activists pouring out into the streets for um, the suffrage amendment, for the 19th Amendment. Who um, Now, historians, of course, have nuanced the account of waves as if there's only one moment of um, feminist activism and uh, people fighting uh, for gender equity. And we can track ongoing work by activists across um, the period from, well, the mid-1800s all the way to the present. But I'm I'm particularly interested in this moment uh, of concentrated, um, large-scale mobilization that drew kind of even the most ordinary apolitical women into uh, a fight for change and really um, pushed the culture in some dramatic new directions. When you talk about mobilization, like I, I'm, I'm a kid of the '80s and '90s. Uh, uh, <laughs> there wasn't a ton. I mean, we had protests against the Iraq War. What do you mean by mobilization? What do people do? Yeah, what do people do in mobilizations? Well, they go out into the street in big marches. Um, so you know, that's a sort of the equivalent of the women's march that happened after our Trump's inauguration in 2017, where you get thousands upon thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, turning out into the streets. Um, they. Uh, form new advocacy organizations, so things like the National Organization for Women, which is founded uh, on the model of the NAACP as a civil rights organization for women and was inspired by uh, the Black freedom struggle of the 1950s and 1960s. You get other kinds of organizations that advocate for women's political representation, like the National Women's Political Caucus. But in the case of the 60s and 70s, you also got leftist feminists organizing, uh, sometimes into kind of small group consciousness raising uh, uh, uh kind of gatherings where people would try to think through what their experiences were as women and then retranslate that into a set of political demands. And then um, it kind of spills over into uh, workplace organizing, organizing to transform the media, mobilizing, uh, you know, advocates uh, for childcare, um, uh, poor black mothers who mobilize in the welfare rights movement. So they form organizations, they write manifestos, they inform journalists, um, they influence intellectuals. So some of the first women's caucuses in um, major disciplines in the academy are formed uh, in the 60s and early 70s in response to the women's movement. So we have, we have kind of two groups of activity. First, there's like a an informal uh, 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 kind of a set of activities like big protests, collective effervescences, people arguing with each other at parties, um, stuff like that to try to change the culture. And then there's a bunch of organizations. There's big national organizations. There are uh, organizations within organizations like these uh, uh, professional organizations for women within the academy. And then there's like small scale local organizations like you might have like a feminist crèche or something, right? Yeah, exactly. You could have a, a you know 
feminist, you could have a small radical feminist group, or you could have women who are kind of middle-class women, some of whom are emerging professionals who are organized through the local commission on the status for women. So I trace a group of women in Seattle, Washington, for example, who um, organize for childcare in the Seattle area. And they come out of a, um, a kind of network of women involved on these kind of official government commissions on the status of women. And they use their roles in these positions in a very mainstream way to advocate for child care. So you can you can see that when you're talking about a, a, a social movement and the kind of mass mobilization that I'm uh, ex- that I explore in the book, you're talking about people coming at the question of uh, women's equality from a variety of political perspectives, uh, it, from you know the most progressive to the most kind of central liberal, to um, and from a variety of organizing strategies. Hmm. And before we jump into talking about some of these specific stories, I, I just what's the scale of this? It's hard sometimes to get scale from 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 reading a history like this. But if I were a person living in the sixties or seventies and even the eighties, could I ignore this, or would it be inescapable? It was inescapable. That's a, I mean, I think that's a crucial thing to uh, uncover I, I, or to talk about. Um, I was astonished that um, when I was doing my research, one of the, the favorite things I uncovered were stories in you know major women's magazines like Good Housekeeping about suburban women, suburban mothers forming their own consciousness raising groups um, to sit and talk about their experience as women and mothers and their frustrations at their lack of support from their male spouses, uh, the expectations that were placed on them for doing all the housework and, and the limitations that they encountered and their kind of radicalization. And you can even find these quite mainstream women um, going back and renegotiating their roles and relationships uh, with their uh, husbands in part, and even sometimes writing uh, new marriage contracts. There was a kind of fad for marriage contracts in the mid-70s that you would think would be the purview of the most radical, but was a theme that you could read about reported in Time magazine, for example. Wow. Okay. Um, so, so, so this is—it's not only that this is like something that's happening with the uh, the the wild and crazies out in the far left. This is something that's so common that 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 it's happening spontaneously in in the suburbs, and right. it's become such a meme that it's reported about in the conventional day to day press as something something that's 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 happening. It's 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 it is inescapable. If I were a contented, uh, uh, naive. 1960s house, you know, house husband going to work every day, smoking my pipe and asking for a cocktail at the end of the evening, I would have found this inescapable. Yeah. And certainly by um, the early 70s, of course, um, a counterpolitical mobilization forms as conservative opposition um, begins to build into what we call today the pro-family movement. And they put out many, many, many characterizations of the feminist movement, typically negative, that were also inescapable as the kind of public discourse of the day. So you get people talking about it across the political uh, spectrum, whether they're uh, advancing the movement or beginning to organize to oppose it. 
Yeah. And what I mean, what's what what really strikes me about about the, the politicization politicization of this is that is that it's it's about stuff that happens every day in the home. It's about the stuff that that kind mm-hmm. of goes automatically. Who who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to look after the mm-hmm. kid? Who's going to do the vacuuming? Um, so there's this mm-hmm. inescapable like the everyday life becomes inescapably politicized in this time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Everyday life. Yeah. I mean, there's no, it's no accident that one of the kind of primary uh, kind of interventions that feminists in this period make is to develop the concept of the personal is political, Mm -hmm. to be able to talk about the ways that uh, things that go on in domains that we think typically think of as private and individual inside the family, inside the home, as not simply problems of individuals, but actually um, systems that are part or, or, uh, or relation, roles and relationships that are part of larger systems um, of um, discrimination and oppression uh, and sexism in this case. Yeah. So people are recognizing that, that the reason why they're so tough, you know, the, the, the household is, is unequally, you know, the burdens of the household are placed unequally on women are not just because their marriages are, are imperfect, but because there's a, a bigger structural change. And to solve the one that's, problem, you need to solve the other. That's right. And if anyone really wants to get that, uh, the way feminists were thinking about that, I highly recommend a very short document that everybody can find on the internet called The Politics of Housework by uh, a wonderful feminist and, and la- later uh, art historian named Pat Minardi, M-A-I-N-A-R-D-I. And The Politics of Housework is wonderful. My students love it. My, uh, my college age daughter loves it. It just like hits home super close and teaches you exactly how feminists broke down presumptions about what women were supposed to do in the home as rooted in a whole set of kind of uh, assumptions that were patriarchal and sexist about how women were supposed to be in the world. Hmm. I, I will put a link to that on the website at historian.live for anybody uh, who wants to look at it. So let's, let's, let's talk about what this feminist project meant for, uh, let's, let's start off with the politics of housework. So what was the, what were people doing to make housework more equitable at this time? More, you know, we have people publishing manifestos or essays about it, but what else were people doing to make housework uh, less onerous? Yeah, so feminists um, very early on recognized that they needed to share the labor at home equally if they wanted to achieve true equality. And even the most mainstream organizations like the National Organization for Women put in their manifesto that for full equality to happen, you have to have change at home and men and women to bear the burdens of their lives at home uh, equally as much as you have to have women's full and equal participation in the realms of work and politics and civic life. Um, they also, they, so they call for that from the earliest days. Um, the, and they get pretty creative. I mentioned earlier marriage contracts and those marriage contracts often um, spell out 
exactly who's going to do what around the house, you know, early chore charts. Um, and in fact, there are all of these uh, advice ma- uh, uh, articles like in Ms. Magazine and elsewhere about how you create a kind of a family chore chart and how you deal, you know, when there's backsliding in the family and, um, you know, your, your male partner, you know, is, is stalling and refusing to do the work. Um, there's also more, um, you know, uh, radical proposals. Um, there is a wages for housework movement where um, feminists in the United States were influenced by uh, a European Marxist feminist movement to demand wages for housework, where they called upon the government to provide uh, wages to women who were working in the home. Um, which um, sounds a lot less radical if you begin to frame it around things like a guaranteed annual income or, um, you know, proper welfare supports for mothers to do the work of caring for children. Um, More liberal and moderate feminists, um, feminist legislators in Congress fought to reform Social Security so that housewives were not as economically vulnerable, either at divorce or upon widowhood, um, to change up the tax code. So they, they, in a whole lot of different ways, tried to come put a kind of dollar value to uh, the housework that uh, women were doing around the um, and the and the uh, and kind of towed up uh, the economic value of that labor, both for individual families, but also to the society as a whole. So, I, in the in, in the shadow of this, in the background of this, is the idea of of the separate spheres of of, of men and women. Like the idea is that that. Men would go off and work and make money, and women would stay in the home and, and and do housework. And what you've been describing are various ways of 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 solving that problem, either by monetizing mm-hmm. housework uh, or by uh, getting men more involved in 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 housework at the home, presumably so that women could could have more of a role in the public sphere. But what 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 was wrong with that uh, situation for feminists in the sixties and seventies? I mean. What 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 was the problem with it? What was the problem with? Um, well, there, there are a couple of different answers to that question. One problem was that you know all of the experts of the day, uh, the psychologists, the sociologists, um, kind of bought into a narrative that it was women's nature to be exclusively in the home and inward facing and men's nature to be striving and outward facing. Um, And feminists, when they moved into the fields of sociology and the fields of psychology and developed uh, feminist strands of intellectual inquiry, really criticized the kind of biased and um, kind of unexamined assumptions and said, wait a minute, there's, there's nothing inherent uh, about men and women, that means they belong in these domains. These are historical constructions, those domains. These um, ideas about women's roles don't necessarily even line up with the uh, historical realities if you look back over time. Um, so one thing was wrong with it, it was it just didn't actually capture um, real people's capabilities, experiences, but was a kind of a form of uh, 
sexist, um, kind of popular uh, social science. Another thing that was wrong with it is that um, it um, was really constrained life horizons and possibilities for both women and men. It was very limiting. Um, It limited uh, the kinds of um, ways that women could uh, expend their energies, develop their intellects, um, get well-paying jobs, uh, be fully participating members in unions, um, and it constrains men's roles as fathers and family members um, and equal participants in the home. And there was a, a whole strand of male feminists who, not a big one, I'll say, but uh, still, there were some male feminists who really fought hard to uh, incorporate a greater role for men in the home, and particularly for men as fathers. Yeah, can we? I I, I don't want as to 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 steal the thunder from like women in the feminist movement, <laughs> but I was really as a new dad who's struggling to uh-huh. to uh, be a equal member of of my household um i was really surprised to read the history of 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 this fatherhood movement and really shocked to read about the psychological ideas of what fatherhood should be before this fatherhood movement can can you tell us a little bit more about about dads i promise i won't i won't uh we'll we'll move off of dads very quickly but i yeah yeah, sure. Um, so, um, yeah, so there was a pretty constrained idea about uh, the kind of level invo- of involvement that a good father should have. Those same kind of older ideas in psychology and sociology um, that I was talking about a, a couple minutes ago prescribed a, a kind of level of maternal involvement and engagement um, with paternal kind of disengagement, mm. particularly at an emotional level. Um, and, and the assumption, again, was that the women were sort of inward facing to the home and the men were sort of outward facing to the world of work. Um, and that that was necessary because of the kind of logic of Freudian psychological development um, and how children and infants bonded with their parents that dominated psychology in this period. And feminists really kind of uh, feminist uh, psychologists, male feminist psychologists, really broke this down and did a lot of studies that essentially showed that if men had a highly involved role in infants' lives, they didn't grow up into psychologically deformed children and adults <laughs> um, and just kind of proved that uh, heavy father involvement in children's lives, uh, especially young children's lives, was a benefit, uh, not a name. Yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, it's it was shocking for me to read some of the advice that you have in that chapter about how fathers should <laughs> behave with their kids because I... <laughs> You know, don't no sissy stuff. I think is one of the um, yeah. one yeah. of the uh, 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 one of the injunctions that 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 that's in your book. Okay, so no more. Let's do no more about fathers. I, I don't want I don't want All dads right. to, to. But let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, there's so many things in your book, so many places to to go to. But let's let's talk a little bit about about race um, and about how this was different for 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 white and black families because there 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 are are there's another sort of project happening with with uh, black families, right? So a couple of different things that are going on for African-American uh, families in the sense that um, so black women uh, 
worked or, you know, black mothers were in the labor force already at significantly higher rates mm. uh, than white mothers were prior to the feminist movement. Although um, in kind of middle class and elite black families, this ideal of women at home and men in the workplace um, was embraced. So like if you look at Ebony magazine or Jet magazine, for example, you'll see um, that depiction uh, of um, the kind of uh, mother in her suburban home. But yeah. there's much less kind of celebration and idealization of that. And leading Black feminists like uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, professional Black feminists, very early on understood that advancing women's rights had to go hand in hand with advancing Black women's civil rights. And in fact, hmm. they often spoke about the need to advance human rights, but they always interlinked um, the, the two struggles. Um, and um, leading Black feminists, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s, um, joined mainstream white-dominated um, uh, feminist organizations and by about 1973 went on to form some of their own independent organizations like the National Black Feminist Organization. Um, poor, more working-class Black women, many of them were uh, the target of kind of vicious attacks on Black families that began with the so-called Moynihan Report in 1965. Mm. Um, and the Moynihan Report characterized Black families as a kind of tangle of pathology and particularly blamed Black women for being overly matriarchal and domineering. And uh, working class Black women spent a lot of time refuting, um, you know, uh, struggling to overturn this kind of terrible uh, denigration of their roles in the family, um, and at the same time organizing to fight uh, to, for better supports for them and their children. And what was the Moynihan Report trying to explain? Like, what was it trying to do? Like, it, it, it has this really negative portrayal of African American families, but what, why was why was there a report written about that? Yeah, it's trying to explain uh, the impoverishment of Black communities in inner cities um, as the civil rights movement heats up, as, um, right. you know, um, as kind of uh, urban revolts unfold in the early 1960s. Okay, so people, a lot of people, there's a lot of social dislocation and pain in the Moynihan Report saying, look, the problem isn't like, segregation. It isn't unequal access to, labor, to, to to good paying jobs. It's that black women and families are too matriarchal. Yeah, it's well, it's it's a it's designed to help, uh, uh, you know, at, at the height of the we're, we're in the years of the war on poverty It's trying to help the government design programs hmm. that would redress um, urban poverty. And it kind of falls in line with um, the um, kind of older vision that what would enable um, economically thriving Black families were families with stable, led by stable male breadwinners. Mm. And so when they go and look in urban communities and say, I saw, 
see quite a few households that are uh, headed by single mothers or um, by um, have have male earners who can't support the household based on their own wage. They think along the lines that were very typical prior to the feminist movement that our job here is to advance male breadwinners to get them better jobs. And so that's where this kind of negative characterization of the black family comes out of. And Moynihan, who's a liberal, he's trying to promote better equality, ends up, you know, demonizing black women, but doing so, you know, in the service of trying to redress uh, urban poverty. Now, black women, of course, reject that analysis, as do many others, by the way, um, from the very get-go. Um, and argue instead in a really radical move that the government needs to stop assuming that every household should or would have a male breadwinner, but rather that it's society's responsibility to enable all mothers, whether poor or rich, to care and support, care for and support their children. And thus poor mothers deserved um, what they call the guaranteed annual income welfare, uh, in order to enable them to do this important work that middle class and wealthy women could do because they had greater income in, coming into their families. Right. I just I just want to recap that because I think it's a super important uh, story right now. So you're saying that that there's this thing that's kind of like universal basic income (UBI) that's coming from. Uh, black feminist movements in in the 1960s and 70s as a response to 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 uh, uh, this assumption that families should be headed by a male breadwinner household. That's right. That as um, welfare becomes a source of political contestation, um, welfare rights advocates. Yeah make a particular claim about what it's supposed to be. And they argue that society needs to provide what we would call a universal basic income, but what they called at the time a guaranteed annual income, uh, to enable mothers to do uh, the work of caring for their children. And in fact, they're among the first to, in their protests, um, carry signs saying every mother is a working mother. Hmm. Hmm. That that's I, I think so. It's not Andrew Yang. It's working mothers in the sixties no. and seventies who's starting out no. the, the the UBI yeah. push. Um, yeah. So let's 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 talk yeah. before we, we 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 jump to talking about what happened after this. Let's talk about one more thing that's on the top of my mind. Let's talk about what second wave feminism thought about child care. How, 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 how were they thinking of reforming child care at this time? Was it just have dads do 50% of the child care or give <laughs> working, or give mothers money to do child care? What, what were some of the things that, that people were uh, uh, trying to do to solve the, I mean, anybody's, I, I did not know this before I had an eight month old, but it is it is like an 80 hour uh, a week job. <laughs> it is, it yeah. is my daughter's crawling and uh, half of my brain at all moments is trying to keep her from dying and crawling into something. Yes. Yeah, for sure. That's absolutely the case. Um, when you have little ones like that, well, they, by the way, they don't really go out of your consciousness, even when they're in their, in their adult state phase of oh, life. God. Really? <laughs> but, I was going to ask, um, does it, my, my, my dad is here helping us. 
and and he said he 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 loves the kid and he's playing with her outside and he looks up with me and he goes when do they stop putting things in their mouths <laughs> not for a while alas <laughs> oh man um, so what's yeah. the feminist solution to this to this pressing and difficult yeah. problem that we've all we we if you as human beings have all contributed to this problem if we haven't actively solved right. it when we were babies ourselves yeah, so I, I tell the story in the book of two levels of feminist activism for childcare. One is an almost spontaneous burst of grassroots activism to organize some care for children. You have childcare cooperatives, you have radical feminists who are influenced by new childbearing ideas, found things like the Liberation Nursery, where they do non sexist uh, um, preschool. School uh, for children. You have your kind of local, uh, you know, mainstream women's organizations like the League of Women Voters or the, you know, those kinds of groups um, uh, founding childcare centers that they house in basements of the local Methodist church. Um, so there's this just sort of sense that it's an urgent need. Uh, we're going to, you know, roll up our sleeves. We're going to figure it out how to do it. There are all kinds of manuals about how to found your own daycare center that are used by community groups to uh, for everything from curriculum to furniture designs for building tot-sized furniture. Hmm. Um, but there's also uh, a national level campaign. Um, and we almost had uh, universal so uh, nationally, federally funded child care um, in something called the Child Care Development Act, um, which was passed by both houses of Congress and vetoed in a quite dramatic message uh, uh, by President Nixon. And it was one of the biggest defeats uh, that the women's movement faced. And, and you can obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed in some pretty raw ways uh, the long-term consequence, you know, 50 years later uh, of that major defeat. So, so I, I can blame Nixon for uh, my current... Yeah. Frazzled state. You can blame Nixon and Nixon, who was influenced uh, by uh, a, a, an advisor who goes on to be one of the leaders of the conservative, um, socially conservative, like uh, social, uh, Christian conservative, um, pro family movement. Um, and it's one of the very, very first kind of shots across the bow, um, in 1971 of this, um, of this, uh, conservative movement. Um, and it comes around the question of childcare. Hmm. So how do we get to, to now? Like my, my situation is a, a, a new parent is in some ways a victory for the, the people that you're talking about. We don't have mm -hmm. a chore wheel, but I do a large part of the, the household chores because my wife works full time and I'm a grad student. I change all the diapers. I, I look after the baby most of the time. Like there's, there's a different weight of childcare, at least in my household. And it's something that we're concerned about. It's something that, that we work on as a couple, but at the same mm -hmm. time, it's a failure because we're just working on it as a couple. We don't have mm -hmm. access to anything else, but our own, you know, into, so what happened? Whose fault? Yeah, is I mean, I think 
<laughs> I think what you're describing is a perfect encapsulation of how feminism, uh, the feminist movement of the 1960s and 70s was both extraordinarily successful and ultimately defeated. It was extraordinarily successful in changing the terms of what we think is fair and right. Mm. And over multiple generations, calling into question and pushing people to um, alter quite deeply embedded assumptions about how men and women should organize their time and energies in workplaces and in the home. Um, and that, of course, has been an ongoing both generational transformation and um, political struggle. But the other side of it is that um, feminists were defeated um, by a Two things. One, uh, this counter conservative political uh, mobilization that I've already mentioned that comes to fruition really with the election of Ronald Reagan as president in 1980. It's also defeated, I think, by the media popularization of the movement. Um, And we can we can capture that in the, the phrase having it all which is a real invention of the popular media, not a term that feminists would have used. And having it all really conceives of the idea of feminist victory through individual accomplishment. And that was anathema to the feminists that I studied. They really, they really believed and fought for kind of institutional change, structural change in the terms that we're talking these days. Um, They knew that there wouldn't be real equality without those kinds of changes and never thought it was really about individuals figuring out how to manage their time in the best way possible. Yeah. And having it all is also kind of a curse because it means that everybody has to be everything at equal levels. Like I am expected to be a full-time grad student and write a dissertation and also to be a full-time good dad and uh, uh, provide my kid with, with loving care and attention at the same level. Um, But how do, how do, how do we get there? How do we get to the point where, where the family is, is just where, where, where everybody's just meant to work and care and, 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 you know, buy the correct kind of, (laughs) of diapers yeah, I mean, that's the, the such a great question um, and is what I'm uh, working on for the project that's uh, coming up next, where um, I'm talking about what I call the rise of the working family. And the idea of the working family is uh, it's a terminology that we really don't start using until the mid to late 80s. Um, and it's terminology which um, sort of breaks away from the assumption that men are breadwinners and women are homemakers and instead assumes that people, uh, men and women are partners in intimate relationships because it's not only no longer assumed that those relationships are always heterosexual, um, allocate out those roles by negotiation and by choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of kind of egalitarian potential in that. And feminists and progressives continue to fight for that egalitarian potential through advocating for better workplace and state supports um, to enable people not to have to do the full time 
job of being a grad student and the full-time job of caring for uh, an infant, right? They, they keep trying to envision alternative ways of organizing our society and providing those kinds of supports. Um, but they're coming up against the kind of dominance of a, a more conservative uh, perspective on it, which says that, yeah, okay, we concede, we are no longer really going to defend the idea that mothers should be at home and fathers should be in the workplace. But it's really about each household individually. And we just yeah. need, you just need to figure it out and manage it better. And at best, we'll give you some tax cuts that might put a few more dollars in your pocket so you can make your choices in a very constrained way. Um, but that's all we're going to offer up to you. And for the moment, it's that latter vision, which has won out. Um, and it's won out in a time of growing income inequality and created the horrible squeeze um, that you're talking about. But, I mean, why? Like who, who, what's, what's, what's the reason for putting all of the, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, of Margaret Thatcher who famously said there is no such thing as society. Um, and people <laughs> usually just take, you know, forget about the rest of the sentence, but she said, there is no such thing as society. There is only individuals and families. And it seems like for all of the, the, you know, right wings, uh, support of the family in word, indeed, the, the, by neoliberal policies, the family has been really squeezed out. But I'm wondering, like, why? What's the what's the what's the idea behind it? Like, what's the what's the charitable read of what this is supposed to accomplish? Is it just greed? Is it just people taking their hands off the wheel? I think for conservatives, um, there's a strong connection between. Uh, economic liberty and freedom of choice in the marketplace and personal liberty and individual choices in the family. And so from the conservative perspective, um, the best thing we can do to enable a, a society that maximizes uh, people's liberty, which is a primary goal of conservatism, is to uh, enhance them um, maximizing their preferences. Um, and from that perspective, we you want to ease the constraints <laughs> that enable individual <laughs> maximization. And from that perspective, those constraints typically come in the form of government action. Yeah. Um, and so those are the types of constraints you want to pull back. Yeah. And and in America, this is this is somewhat corrosive because there's not a ton we have less middle ground in between individuals family and the state there's we have big organizations which seek to make money but we don't we seem to have less of of robust community groups that might step in to fill the void right and 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 you know what feminists in the 60s and 70s understood is um e even those robust community groups um, were, you know, sorely inadequate to actually meet the real needs uh, that people had uh, for, say, child care that extended to shift workers or um, real meaningful part-time work that meant that you could accommodate a school schedule or for creches that provided high-quality, uh, you know, preschool-like uh, daycare um, that were universally available rather than, you know, um, 
you know, only available at the highest quality levels to the highest payers. So yeah. all of those ideas that we could just individually choose how to organize things miss the way that kind of mediating space um, requires kind of society-wide intervention, not just on a, a, a business or a volunteer basis. Uh, I mean, the, the, anybody who's participated in this choice-filled market for baby life it knows that it's, it's highly constraining. We have an eight-month-old, and we have to go on wait lists for daycare. Like if we're on daycare, we yeah. have to like be for a quote unquote good daycare. We have to be on a wait list for over a year. Um, so I, I, yeah. I want to turn to close with 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 those with our feminist activists of the sixties and seventies. What can we learn from them today? Um, what 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 sort of lessons can we take to if 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 we were so inclined to continue uh, their forgotten fight? Um, well. One of the things that I learned in writing the book was the just kind of um, amazing scope of their vision, their sense that transformation had to be multifaceted um, from our kind of most intimate relationships and kind of personal interactions with um, partners to um, rethinking our most basic institutions, um, particularly workplaces, to reconceiving what um, it means as a society to support a family. So I think um, not being afraid to think big, to have a grand vision, um, to think comprehensively is something that's really important. Um, when I get kind of down and dirty in it right now in today's politics, um, I think a couple of battles are really important. I'm focused on battles for domestic workers and domestic workers' mm. bills of rights so that um, the people who do this work for pay can receive the level of pay they deserve and the dignity at work that all workers should have and the labor protections that we extend to so many workers, but not fully to domestic workers. Mm -hmm. um, I think about childcare. Um, I was on a panel about a year and a half ago with Eleanor Holmes Norton and um, she said, you know, we all, you all, you all, right, she was pointing to me and younger people, you all need to get together and unify your voices around childcare. And, and when she said that, at the time, I was a little taken aback, because I was like, well, they did fight for childcare, she was implying that nobody did before. But I, it came back to me in the last few months. And I thought, you know what? She's right. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it does need to move uh, more to the forefront of a unified demand. Um, and it needs to be a universal um, right, not a means tested benefit. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I, I can totally agree with that. Well, well, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Uh, Professor Sw uh, uh, Swinth, uh, uh, the book is 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 incredibly rich, and uh, I encourage everybody to get it, especially uh, you in-laws out there, like my mother-in-law, who is probably listening. Um, this is a, a great recommendation for you. Um, thank you again for joining uh, me today. Thank you for uh, Duncan Barton, who made our image, and Jonathan Lear, who made our music. Uh, if you like the show, uh, check us out on the internet, historian.live, rate and review us on iTunes, do all those things that you like with things that you like on the internet. Um, and join us next week when we'll be talking uh, about the history of manga. <laughs>